You are listening to Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson, lesson number 10, Birthright, Blessings, and Marriage in the Covenant. We will be discussing Genesis chapters 24 through 30. Welcome to those who might be joining us for the first time. We're grateful for everyone listening. Again, for those of you who have just joined us, you can email me at any time by emailing gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Give me your first name and your city, and I'd be happy to read your email on the program. And the lesson we have today is one of my favorites because it's an illustration of a concept that shows up again and again in the scriptures, and it's been important to me since my mission. And my mission president said to all of the missionaries in our mission once, he said, pay attention whenever you see the last shall be first and the first shall be last, because that is a very poorly understood concept in the scriptures. And we'll talk about, that isn't mentioned in the Old Testament as far as I know. Uh, Jesus said it many times in the New Testament, but the the stories of the birthrights of the patriarchs are very much illustrative of this concept, so we'll talk about that. And so first, uh, we'll start out in Genesis chapter 24, and Abraham has born his son Isaac, and Isaac has grown up, and the time comes, Isaac is, or Abraham is getting old, and the time has come for Isaac to find a wife, and it's, it's hard for us to quite understand how important it is that their children marry in the covenant. I guess it, there are a lot of LDS people who face this problem, but uh, if you remember when we studied Abraham, the very first lesson on Abraham, when he talks about the desires that he had, and one of them was to be a prince of peace, and I desired to be one who possessed greater knowledge. And then when he receives his, his blessings, or he talks about receiving the priesthood, he said, uh, this came down through the fathers, or the right of the fathers, uh, even the first father, Adam, down to me. He's talking about the fact that because his family had at least preserved the covenant lineage, he had the right to the priesthood. And although Abraham's father was a wicked man, he had done at least that much. He, they were Abraham was within the patriarchal family and therefore entitled to the priesthood if he could prove himself worthy. And at this time in the history of the Lord's people, that was a restricted right. It wasn't something as today where today we seek out anyone who's willing to come unto the priesthood. And in fact, the oath and covenant of the priesthood says, Woe unto any who receive not this oath and covenant. But in that time, it wasn't generally available. And that's what, in the first chapter of Abraham, you can read that, what what Abraham aspired to and then received. He received the priesthood. And in giving up, in, in marrying outside of that lineage, what Abraham's children would have been giving up and what uh, Ishmael gave up is the right for his children to continue that lineage. So Ishmael would have had the right to the priesthood or at least to to some of the aspects of the priesthood. And we'll talk about exactly what blessings he did have the right to. But he wouldn't have been able to pass that to his children without marrying in the covenant. And, uh, you know, it, it was possible for a woman to convert, and he could have converted his wives to worship Jehovah. And yet, uh, a lot of times when people of, of that time married someone outside of the covenant, then what happened was then they didn't convert their wives, and they ended up following after them instead. Or their husbands. Uh, and we read early earlier on, and you know, between chapters 4 and 11, say, of Genesis about how the the daughters of God married the sons of men, and so it could go either way. In any case, Abraham brings his trusted servant, and he says, my son Isaac is the one, is the covenant, the the Abrahamic covenant, this covenant that we talked about, where God has promised Abraham, you will have this land for an everlasting inheritance. You will have offspring as the stars in the sky or as the dust of the earth. And you, through your seed will all the people of the earth be blessed. 
and Isaac is that covenant lineage. And so we have to find him a wife, someone who believes in Jehovah and is willing to worship God and not idols and not all of the paganism that surrounds us. So he swears his servant and the servant says, you know, I can take Isaac with me and we can go back to where your family comes from. That's where we know that there will be more believers. And Abraham says, no, under no circumstances, you you can go try to find a wife. If it doesn't work out, then I'll release you from your oath. But under no circumstances, take Isaac back there. And for obvious reasons, if you remember uh, poor Abraham's history in the land he grew up in. But the servant doesn't have to go quite that far. He goes back to the land of Haran. And and I'll refresh your memory just a little bit. Haran was where Abraham stopped over when he first left Ur. His father followed him out of that original country where Abraham had almost been sacrificed. And he got as far as Haran and stayed there many years. And we talked about how in what way is Abraham a prince of peace. And that one of those ways was in building a following in doing missionary work and in building a spiritual following. And even though he wasn't a prince in the political sense, he didn't have any power of the law behind him because he had influenced the lives of so many for good, then Abraham was a prince of peace. And his uh, his posterity also seeks after that. We'll talk about how they followed in his footsteps in that way. But Haran is the place where he did that. And Haran is named after his brother. Or at least that they called it the name, that was the name given to it by Abraham's posterity. It might have had a different name before that, but because it was a pre-existing place. So Abraham stopped there for some time, and his brother lived there, his father died there, and... I point that out just because it's interesting to understand exactly what these relationships are. This is really the, the first time that I've done this. And having studied this more carefully this time for my podcast, uh, these names ring a lot more bells than they have in the past. In any case, this is Abraham's, one of Abraham's nieces and his cousin. So it's Isaac's. So he's related to her in two different ways because uh, Abraham's brother married his niece and I don't know how much how important that is to understand all of that, but uh, in other words, it's Isaac's cousin and second cousin in two different ways, which surprisingly is surprisingly common throughout human history. We kind of think, oh, they married their cousin, but actually that was most of the marriages in the world. I just found this out last year, nothing to do with gospel doctrine, but uh, most of the married marriages in human history were with first cousins until the mid-1800s, or even a little bit later. More than half, about 90% of the marriages in throughout human history, so that's interesting. Anyway, you didn't realize you were going to get some trivia when you tuned in today, but the servant arrives in Haran, and he's sitting at the well outside, and he's thinking to himself, okay, I've got to find a wife for Isaac, and he comes up with a plan, and he prays in his mind. He says, God, I'm going to ask someone, I'm going to ask some people, some women, to give me a drink. And whoever says to me, okay, I'll give you water, but I will also water your camels. Whoever says that, this is the person that you've sent me here to find. And he didn't have to look very long. As soon as he's finished thinking this in his mind, Rebecca shows up. He asks her for a drink, and she says, let me give your camels to drink also. And... you could guess of the number of camels, but a camel can drink as much as 10 gallons in a day. So he's just finished a journey through the desert and she may have, she may have drawn just because he asked her for a drink. She may have drawn a hundred gallons of water for uh, the servant. So that's kind of an interesting story. tells you a lot about the character of Rebecca. In any case, he asks her who her family is, figures out exactly how closely related they are and, and knows that she must be, one of these people, one of these worshipers of Jehovah, and follows her back to her house. He's rejoicing. And he gets there, tells the story, and Rebecca's family says, well, this is obviously from God, and they they allow him to take Rebecca with him. Uh, And Rebecca believes in his words and decides on the spot that she's going to marry Isaac. Uh, A few interesting things about this part of the story. First of all, it, she must have a ton of faith if she's willing to take off with this guy, maybe never see her family again 
Uh, I don't believe she ever did return to visit. So it was probably a couple of weeks worth of journey. And for a woman alone, wouldn't happen. And uh, Abraham wasn't about to let Isaac go back there by himself or with his wife alone. So they just never got the opportunity to go home again. She left her family forever. Secondly, remember the name Laban, because Laban was Rebecca's brother, and he's the, he's the man who first says, okay, this is obviously from God. We can't tell you, we can't say good or bad to you. This, it is what it is, and we're going to let God have his way. It seems like a very faithful thing to say. But, and we'll, we'll psychoanalyze Laban a little bit more when we talk about Jacob. Jacob goes back and meets him. And that's a story I'm sure you'll remember once we start talking about it. But Rebecca goes, she marries Isaac. And this is a part you have to do a little bit of math to figure out. But uh, it says that Isaac is 40 when he marries Rebecca, and then she's barren, and he entreats. They spend one verse on it, but Isaac entreats the Lord for his wife, and then she bears two children. Uh, but then you find out a few verses later that he's three score or 60 years old when his children are born. So it wasn't a small thing, and this was a big deal to have children back then. And so to be barren, quote-unquote barren, for 20 years is must have been a huge tragedy in their lives, a very a huge trial, I should say. And just the fact that Jacob was the prophet uh, didn't seem to, or uh, Isaac was the prophet, didn't seem to have mitigated his suffering in any way. At around this time, Isaac is traveling from one, he's, he's moving his family from one place to another, and the Lord appears to him and renews the covenant that he made with Abraham, and in every particular. Then Jacob and Esau grow up, and again, Jacob, we'll talk a little bit more about Jacob's growing up, but Jacob also has this promise renewed to him in exactly very, very similar words, exactly that each term of that covenant is renewed to each of these three men in three successive generations. So it's not just Abraham's covenant. It, it belongs to all of them. They're often called Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's because that he's made this specific covenant to all three of these prophets and their wives and to no one else that we can find in scripture. And there's a, the, we'll talk about what the reasons for that might be, most notably that that Jesus Christ was destined to come through their lineage. And after Jacob, the, the promise of Christ coming through their lineage forks off from the, from the priesthood power. And so Joseph becomes the prophet, the son of Jacob, but Judah is the one who's promised that Christ will come through his lineage. So that might be why that, that covenant wasn't renewed after that. In any case, Jacob and Esau are born to Isaac and Rebekah. So these are the grandchildren, the grandsons of Abraham. And they're twins. And Esau is born first. And Esau is favored of his father. And the, the two boys grow up and Esau becomes a hunter. And his father likes him because he brings him delicious meat from the animals that he kills. He's a talented hunter. And it, all it says about Jacob is that he dwells in tents. But we can gather from the, the context in the surrounding chapters that he is raising animals in the, on the plains, that he is tending to flocks. And so he's slowly, by hard work, building up more and more substance, more wealth. And meanwhile, Esau is living day to day hunting. Now, what follows is a story that would seem to paint, it's almost like a fairy tale or a fable. And it would seem to paint Jacob as a, a deceiving individual. And it makes Esau sort of a, a sympathetic character because what happens is Esau is destined. And now let's talk about the concept of birthright. So in, in all ancient cultures, but especially in the ancient Near East, the firstborn son was the one who had to take care of all of the father's 
goods and family when the father died. And so if the father would die before uh, his wife, for example, or before all of his children were married, then that firstborn son had the responsibility to take care of everyone. And this came with certain privileges as well. One of them was a double portion of the inheritance. So let's say there are two children. They would split it up into three parts, and the firstborn son would get two of those. And that's so that he could take care of everyone. And I I don't know, we don't have any record that, that Isaac and Rebekah had more than just Jacob and Esau. So they had two children. And that's called the birthright. And interestingly enough, in uh, so the birthright specifically means right of birth. And interestingly enough, in, in Hebrew, birthright and firstborn are the same word. And in fact, uh, my mission language is Portuguese. And the word for birthright in Portuguese is, if you translate it literally, it means firstbornness. So this, we, we say birthright, and it's very, very closely tied to the idea that you are the firstborn son. So that's the definition of birthright. Nevertheless, at, at some point, we don't, we don't know all of the uh, circumstances surrounding this event, but Esau comes in from hunting one time, and Jacob has made some pottage, some food, uh, based on grain rather than meat. But Esau must not have found an animal on this particular hunt. And he says, feed me, I'm going to die. And Jacob says, okay, but you have to sell me your birthright. Now we would think, oh, does this mean... If you, if you have a just a casual reading of this scripture, you would think that he's selling him everything. He's selling him this double portion, all of the responsibilities. But then uh, Jacob agrees to it, and he says, okay, you know, what good is my birthright going to do me if I die? Yes, I'll take this. And as you read that, you think, what kind of brother would force his brother to sell him his birthright? Why do, why, if he's going to die of hunger, why wouldn't he just give him some food? Well, we know that Jacob became the prophet. Jacob uh, had this wonderful covenant renewed with him. And so it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. My personal take is that there is a lot that we're missing in the context of this story. And I'm going through it rather quickly so that we can talk about some of the concepts, some of the spiritual concepts in more depth. But... I'm just trying to refresh everyone's memory on exactly what happened, what the events are. And Jacob and Esau struck this bargain. Uh, Some scholars believe that the birthright in in this particular passage is talking about... So sometimes the birthright would include things like items, special inheritances. You know, when someone dies today, the family might go through the home and say, okay, who gets the... China cabinet, who gets the car, who gets, you know, mom's old rug. And this is kind of similar. If there are precious heirlooms, this might, this might be exactly what it was that Esau sold to Jacob. And we can presume that there had been discussions about whatever it was. And we can also presume that the Lord isn't going to do something that's unfair. Um, I, I, I kind of think that Jacob... In my, I know this is not really defensible in a, from a scholarship point of view, but I kind of assume in my mind that Jacob was righteous. He was acting righteously in all of this, just because the I don't believe that God would have blessed him had he deceived his brother out of selfishness. So I kind of think, and I've chosen to believe, let's put it that way, that there's something we're missing in all of this, and Jacob was acting honorably, and we just don't know exactly what those circumstances were. In any case, Esau doesn't really value his birthright all that much and says, yeah, sure, I'll sell it to you. And so today we have the saying, sold, he sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. In other words, he sold something infinitely precious for what he needed right now in the moment, but would very quickly, the need for which would very quickly pass. Now, a few years go by, and then Isaac gets to the point where he can't see all, all that well, and he says to himself, I don't know exactly when I'm going to die, so I think I should gather my boys to me and give them my blessing. Now, this is similar to what we would call today a patriarchal blessing. It is uh, a statement of destiny, and 
it was understood that Esau would receive a blessing. So in addition to the birthright, which may be both uh, a double portion and rights and responsibilities, but also a blessing from his father, meaning a, a spiritual foretelling of what his mission in life might be. And again, we have a situation that seems like Jacob acts duplicitously. And, uh, and it, the scriptures say that, that Isaac loved Esau. So Esau was his favorite son, but Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. Now, this is really sad. You've, uh, not that they might have had favorite children, but that, that it was well known enough to be recorded in scripture. That's the sad part, because if you're a parent, you may have a favorite child, but I imagine you studiously avoid ever letting anybody guess that. Uh, and that is a good thing to do. I, I think you should make sure that all your children feel like you love them equally, even if you can't treat them equally and it's impossible to treat your children equally. But for sure, uh, don't let it be well known enough that all their descendants find out exactly who your favorite was. But uh, so this this time comes and Abraham says to Esau, please go hunt me up something. Make me that special meat dish that I really love. Bring me that savory meat that you know that I love, and then I'll give you my blessing. And Rebecca overhears this, and she tells Jacob, go out and get a kid from the field, or a couple of kids, two baby goats, and we'll, we'll dress them up. And then Jacob puts on Esau's best clothes, and she takes, the Rebecca takes the skins of these baby goats and wraps them around his neck because it the scriptures describe Esau as a hairy man. And so he must have been very hairy because she puts this uh, goat skin on the back of his neck and on the palms of his hands. And Isaac, feeling those mistakes, he says, well, you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau, so you must be Esau, you know, and, and you smell like Esau. And that's, uh, that's a little commentary on Esau's hygiene. And again, it feels like, oh, and and then Isaac goes goes ahead and pronounces this blessing and he says, you will, the dew of the earth, everything will, will serve you and your brother will serve you and you will have dominion and, and power and glory and the blessings of God and gives him all of the best blessings. And it's, so again, there's something here that we're just missing because it doesn't seem like God can be deceived. And then, uh, the blessings if you just put on the right outfit and lie your way in that you could get a blessing that way. And that idea is sort of reinforced when Esau returns and, and he says, okay, I'm ready for my blessing. And Isaac says, wait a minute, then who was just here? I just gave your blessing away. And whoever I gave it to is really going to get that blessing. And that answer is, is telling because what he's saying is, basically that I felt the spirit confirm that what I was saying was going to be visited upon his head. So it really was going to come true, the blessing that I gave him. And that's kind of my reinforcing of why that, that was probably the right thing. Now, maybe my, my own personal guess, and it's just a guess, is that Esau was a wicked man and his mother knew it and, uh, and maybe she didn't love Jacob more, but she favored him more because she could see that just like her. So what was Rebecca's background? She had been, we'll find out later a little more about her brother, but she had been maybe alone or at least in the minority. And even in her household of worshipers of Jehovah, she'd been alone in how much she loved God. And she probably felt very isolated. And here's Jacob, whose brother, we learned that Esau takes a wife from among the Hittites, which was just terrible. Their, his parents' hearts were broken when he did that, two wives, and from non-believers. And that meant that his children couldn't continue this, this covenant. They couldn't be part of the blessed lineage that, they was, that would have been their birthright had their father chosen better. And that broke their parents' heart. And so it's possible that Isaac was just blinded, their father was just blinded to by the fact that, you know, he had a, some male bonding with his son, and he wanted his son to change his ways, and he 
wanted to believe in him. And so he, he was determined maybe to give him this birthright blessing uh, to change his life around. But the Lord had another idea, which was, I'm going to have you bless the more righteous son. Even though it doesn't seem necessarily like Jacob was acting more righteously, uh, I presume that we're missing some of the some of the weaker elements of Esau's nature in these scriptures. In any case, Esau is really upset, and he plans to kill his brother, and that tells us a little bit more about him as well. But Rebecca finds out, and she tells uh, Jacob, "You need to go, and also you need to find yourself a wife." So let's get you out of here and let's get you married and kill two birds with one stone. And why don't you go back to where I came from and go speak to my brother? And that's what, that's what Jacob does. So he goes back to Haran. And if you, always in the past, I've read these stories separated. So I didn't realize Laban was the same guy, but when you read these together, you can see, uh, you might imagine that Laban was a little upset that his his sister was, in one day, his sister was taken away. So when Jacob shows up, we now find that that Laban treats Jacob uh, less than honorably, you might say. The first thing that Jacob does is he meets Rachel by the well. And uh, similar to what his father's servant had done, he, he encounters her by a well while they're watering the animals. Slightly different circumstances, but same same idea. He asks her who her family is, and she tells him, and he rejoices. He says, oh, wow, this is a woman in the covenant. And in the scripture that we have, in the, in the normal version of Genesis, it says she's beautiful to look upon. But in the jo- Joseph Smith translation, it says she was fairer than anyone he'd ever seen, you know, beyond, beyond anything he'd ever seen. So the most beautiful girl in the world. And uh, so he is, of course, extremely excited. Right away, asks her father, so his uncle Laban, "Can I can I marry your daughter?" And he says, "Yes, that's great, but you have to work for me for seven years, and before you can marry her." And Jacob thinks that's a little steep, but he agrees to it, and so he works for seven years. And at the end of those seven years, and you know. I kind of think that that was a punitive request from from Laban to say, well, it really hurt when your father's servant came and or your grandfather's servant came and took my sister away in one day. So I'm, there's no way I'm going to let that happen to my daughter. You know, this is different. That was my sister. This is my daughter. So you're going to work for seven years. And Jacob does. He works seven years. And then... It says in the morning, so we don't know, did he spend his entire wedding night with his new wife, or maybe he got married and then just went to sleep. But in any case, he finds out it's not Rachel at all, but her older sister. And then Laban says, he pulls his first dirty trick, and he says, oh yeah, her sister, it's not our way to marry a younger sister first if the older sister isn't married. So you got to work another seven years for Rachel. And Jacob agrees to this. But he's allowed, he, he is married only to Leah for a week, and then he's allowed to marry Rachel right away. And then he works another seven years. And all told, by the time Jacob leaves Haran, he has worked for Laban for 20 years because he works 14 years for his wives, and then he works six years to have something to take with him, to take the cattle with him. And again, it almost seems like Jacob acts duplicitously in the way that he separates the cattle, but he... He tells, uh, he, he approaches Laban with a deal and he says, I'm going to, I'm going to take all of the ring straked and all of the speckled cattle and you can keep all of the plain colored ones. And Laban agrees to this, but then what happens, but that, uh, God basically, this is God appears to Jacob later and tells him I've, I've blessed these cattle so that only the ring straked ones will reproduce and uh, in one generation, pretty much, uh, Laban's Laban's flock is decimated, and Jacob's flock multiplies exceedingly. So when he leaves, he's a wealthy man, and he mistrusts Laban, his father-in-law, enough that he kind of takes off in secret. And Laban, uh, number one, he's upset that he's left suddenly, but then he notices that his gods are missing, which we can presume means idols. 
and so he tracks him down and seven days later it catches up to him and uh it was rebecca that or uh, sorry it was rachel his daughter that stole those idols so obviously again there's a faithful woman in laban's life and he's less than faithful and she wanted him to change a little bit and so she stole his idols so that he couldn't worship him anymore and she hides him he doesn't find him and uh they make an agreement let's let's have there be peace between us and jacob continues on his way and before but before jake jacob could leave the house of laban in those 13 years since he was married his wife leah has borne him four sons and then leaves off bearing meanwhile rachel is barren and as was her mother-in-law and her husband's grandmother as well they were i mean it was barren they called the women barren obviously we don't know it could have been the men too uh but in in any case they had trouble childbearing for three generations in a row and then leah gives her maid to jacob as a wife to make up for the fact that she can no longer bear children and rachel does the same he has some more children then leah bears children again and then finally Rachel bears a son, and this is Joseph. And again, it's his 11th son, so Jacob's 11th son. So by the time Jacob leaves, he has 11 sons and a daughter. And then he heads back towards what we, present-day Israel, what we know as Israel. And Jacob is back to uh, the land of his fathers, and he meets up with Esau. And he's worried that Esau is still going to kill him, even though it's been 20 years. And Esau falls on his neck and and cries, and he's they have a tearful and, and brotherly reunion. And we'll talk about Joseph uh, next week. Joseph is one of the most fascinating characters in the entire Old Testament and all of Scripture. But uh, we'll just say briefly that jo- Joseph becomes the birthright son, and then Joseph has two children, two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And... Ephraim is the younger son, but he becomes the birthright son. So those are the events that we're going to talk about. And now let's talk about some of the concepts. And the first concept that's so obvious is, and I, what we didn't mention at the beginning was that Abraham, we don't know exactly where he fell in the birth order, but we know he wasn't first. So the birthright for five generations in a row, instead of following this is why I discussed this before, that the birthright and firstborn are the same word in Hebrew. And therefore, it should be every time that the, the firstborn son is the birthright son. But here we have five examples in right in a row. And these five are the most exhaustively described characters to this point and for some time to come, you know, until we get to Moses. And then after that, no one really is as described, we don't spend as much time with any characters as we spend with these. And so they're very important in in the story of the Hebrew people and in the spiritual history of the people of God throughout all time, in the worship of Jehovah, very important characters. And yet none of them have followed the pattern that was set up. So the question that we ask ourselves that the entire point of this lesson is why is that? And the way we started was talking about the concept, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Let's talk a little bit about the birthright. And I I said that the birthright was a way for the eldest son to take care of the family when the father died. He would have a little bit more. So, and, and, these inheritances were divided up only among the sons. So he'd have a little bit more. He could take care of his mother. He could take care of any sisters that were still unmarried. That was one point of it. But in the specific case of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had been promised as part of this covenant. The covenant meant when it said, in thy seed shall all the people of the earth be blessed. Part of the meaning of that was that their seed would carry the gospel to everyone. But a specific part of that promise was that Christ himself would come through their seed. And the obvious answer is that 
the righteousness of the child, when you're dealing with something as important as what lineage Christ is going to come through, the righteousness of the child is more important than the birth order. But that doesn't seem to be a complete answer because there are later, obviously, all of Christ's ancestors can't have been righteous people. It's impossible. And he had his share of very interesting, colorful individuals, let's say, in his in his ancestry. So that, that isn't the full answer. So again, when we reach a, a place, uh, a, a logical dead end like this, one good thing to think about is, how could this be pointing us to Christ? Could this, could this have a deeper meaning that has to do with the Savior? Because so much of the way the gospel worked in the Old Testament, these, these lessons about Christ, they had to be taught symbolically because the people were just too hard-headed to accept them and do what was right naturally. They had to almost get it subliminally from every angle. And over and over again in the scriptures, Jesus Christ, first of all, is called the firstborn of the Father. And his church is called the church of the firstborn, those people who, who overcome the world. So in, in one symbolic sense, the firstborn or the birthright son is the son that should represent Christ. And then in a second sense, so if that's the case, then why isn't it always the firstborn son? So then in a second sense, Christ is also not the firstborn, meaning he's not the one that receives the obvious blessing. In his first earthly ministry, in his first coming, Christ was stricken and despised of men and rejected. So as Isaiah described and so in that way, he would resemble one of the younger sons, one who didn't have very special inheritance. And in Jacob's family, especially, if you're dividing your, all your goods up among 11 sons, which later became 12, then there's not much left over for one of the younger sons. And also, Christ, Paul refers to Christ as the second Adam, and obviously, Adam is the firstborn on the earth. And he's the, he's the first to be reborn as well. He's the first to have, be spiritually born of God. And when Paul calls Christ the second Adam, meaning that he's going to correct the course of humanity that Adam put us on, then he's telling us that we had one firstborn, but then the real righteousness, the real covenant, the the all of the blessings of the covenant of Abraham, the people of the earth would be blessed through a seed. All of these covenants are repeated about Christ by different prophets in the Old Testament. And so in a very interesting way, Christ is represented by both the firstborn sons and the other more righteous sons that took the blessings away from their older siblings. It's very fascinating that Christ would be represented in in both ways and so by studying and the and the exception becomes the rule in this particular passage of genesis and there are more similarities than just those for example uh three times in a row the mothers are barren three times four times in a row so with jacob with I, with abraham he had to leave his country with isaac after his children were born he had to leave his country jacob he had to run away because his brother wanted to kill him so all of these people had had family members who wanted to kill him. Same with Joseph. And that happened with Jesus. When he was born, he had to flee. His parents had to flee to Egypt. And he was born also through a miraculous birth. In his case, as we discussed last week, his, his case was a little different. But in, in the case of Sarah, she was 90 years old. And in the case of Mary, she was a virgin. So they were both miraculous conceptions. So there are too many similarities to ignore. God is trying to tell us that the birthright, the actual process of inheriting the priesthood and the right to represent God is tied up with Jesus Christ. And no matter whether it's passed from the, from the father and mother to the firstborn son, or whether it's passed to someone who's more righteousness because it's been forfeited, then Christ represents both of those processes. And in fact, I kind of think that the, 
the way that the birthright worked or was supposed to work and then the way that it worked all these exceptions during the times of the patriarchs those exceptions are meant to teach us who Christ is were meant they were meant to teach by a loving God who knew that there would be a lot of apostasy and the plain and precious things would be taken out of their scriptures it was meant to teach those observant Jews who were paying attention to the scriptures and reading humbly and prayerfully seeking for the deeper truths and as the word of wisdom calls it, hidden treasures of knowledge. For those who were doing that, they could recognize Jesus when he came. And this is just one small way. It isn't as though these examples alone, these exceptions alone are enough to teach that. But it seems like taken with everything else, and with a, a full measure of the Holy Ghost, they might have been enough to help a humble follower of God in the time of Jesus actually recognize their Messiah. Now, right in the middle of all of this, there's a story that is overlooked a lot of times that I think is illustrative of exactly what's going on. Uh, and it and it's when Jacob is on one of his journeys and, but when he leaves his home, God appears to him directly. And this is when the Abrahamic covenant is renewed for the third time. And he names the place Bethel, meaning house of God. But in that vision, he sees a ladder extending to heaven. And the angels are reaching the earth by climbing down it and returning to heaven by climbing back up. So this is the ladder. This is the connection between God and man. And it doesn't explain exactly what this ladder is. But one answer, and I think to me the obvious answer, the only answer really in the terms of the gospel is this ladder represents covenant. So he's given this covenant, but it's not the only covenant. And, and the, or, or let me put it this way, the ladder, the overarching covenant of Abraham is the ladder, but each individual covenant are the rungs of the ladder. And throughout these chapters, there are several covenants, the covenant of circumcision. And in the Joseph Smith history, it's also mentioned that the covenant of circumcision, which was given to Abraham, had reference to baptism. It was meant to remind anyone following that covenant that their children did not need to be baptized until they were eight years old. So they had that covenant. They had the covenant of the priesthood and they also had the covenant that they would marry within the the blessed lineage, the lineage that was allowed to have all the blessings of those who worship Jehovah. So all of these covenants together, plus so many others, I mean, every commandment is a covenant. All of those together were this ladder that Jacob had rising up into heaven. And it's if you, it's not at the middle of our lesson for today, but if you take the story of Abraham all the way down through Joseph and then Ephraim, it's kind of central. It's it's at a very central point, which is a significant place for a story in Hebrew. And if you'll remember what a chiasmus is or parallelism of uh, more generally, parallelism is something that's repeated. And usually in the repetition, it's slightly changed. And in that change, you can understand what the central, by, by seeing the way that the two parts of the parallels, parallelism are phrased and what they have in common, you can understand what's being conveyed. And chiasmus is a special case of parallelism where there's a, there are two things that are stated, but they are at the beginning and the end. And then second and second to last, two more things are stated, and those are similar. And then after the first two and before or before the last two, something else is stated. And so it's nested parallelisms. And in the very center of that chiasmus is the central concept that is meant to be understood. And so if you look at the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Manasseh, and Ephraim, Manasseh and Ephraim brothers. So there are five generations there. Jacob's the middle one. And this is right in the middle of his life. He, that's when he discovers the ladder. And incidentally, here's another trivia fact that a, a Jacob's ladder is a, 
is an electronic or an electrical device where two wires are set apart a certain distance and then a certain electrical field is run into these wires and a, and a spark will run across the two wires and the wires are slanting apart as they go up. And so that spark will rise and then as soon as it gets too far apart, it will break and then start at the bottom again. That's a Jacob's Ladder. And it's sort of magical and it's not very well understood how it could work. And that's kind of like the ladder that Jacob saw leading to heaven. So that's why it was given that name. So consider the life of Abraham from, not from biblical sources, but from traditional Hebrew sources. We learn that, or we, we, we find that Abraham is described at least as somebody who was righteous from a very young age, who had visions of God. He was a prophet from the age of 14, in fact, and Isaac also obedient to his father, humble, and persecuted. And Jacob, the the vision we get of him in the book of Genesis, while it doesn't necessarily match the description that would be used to describe his father and grandfather, um, he was given the name Israel. The, the entire people of God that followed were named after him. And Joseph, what a towering example of righteousness. He was betrayed and sold into slavery and imprisoned and never lost his faith. Or, or, or at least he acted as though he had faith and he always acted righteously, even though he may have doubted. We don't know as much about Ephraim, but we do know that the tribe of Ephraim, Joseph, was so righteous that both of his sons were given their own tribe, whereas his other brothers were only given one each. And the tribe of Ephraim is the tribe that will carry the gospel to all the world. And most members of the church today in their patriarchal blessings would say, if they were asked, would share that they were in the tribe of Ephraim. So these men, so righteous, they climbed these rungs. They started with the the covenant that their parents made, which was that we will keep this child unspotted from the world, circumcised, and as Paul describes, circumcised in heart is so much more important. Then they would be baptized at eight years old. They would be taught the ways, the commandments of God, the learning of God, the history of the people of God, and then they would be expected to marry somebody who believed similarly to them. These are all so important, and not only are they important, but as we can see in the lives of the patriarchs, they are actual types of Christ, the lives of the people who follow them because of the ways that they're either blessed or not blessed. God can find a way to teach us about Christ just in the lives of the people who follow him. And then this ladder in the middle of it is the fact that God is constantly reaching down to earth. He has provided this physical link that has, for Jacob at least, it had a, a real presence. And rather than angels flying around, they had a route to follow. It wasn't just that they could descend and ascend on their wings. They were climbing a ladder up and down from earth. And I love that imagery because it's the ladder of righteousness and it's the ladder of keeping, making and keeping covenants. And God could have just given us a bunch of commandments and not actually had us, if you think about it, um, you don't get any more righteous, you don't get any more faithful just by being dunked in water, for example. The physical part of the covenant of baptism doesn't do you a whole lot of good. For somebody to put their hands on your head and say words doesn't necessarily make you a better person. So the covenants themselves if you, if you were in God's place, you would think, well, I can think of a, a, a plan that would bring people back to me that wouldn't involve these ordinances of the gospel. And ordinances are, ordinances are meant to commemorate covenants. And I can think of a plan that would perfect people and they wouldn't have to go through the ordinances of the gospel. So that's an interesting fact that it's not the ordinances that better us, it's the covenants. And yet, 
The covenants are the parts, the rungs of this ladder. The covenants are kind of like, for lack of a better image, I'd say they're kind of like the points on a compass. The, you know, in an airplane, for example, the, the airplane is not powered by the compass. It's powered by its engines. But those points on the compass, if you don't pay attention to them, and if you don't actually peg your course, if you don't nail down your course according to those points on the compass, then the most powerful engines in the world won't get you where you want to go. And that's the ladder that we have. So we have the prophets, the patriarchs, and their wives, the supreme examples of righteousness, given some of them given birthright when they did not qualify for it, or you wouldn't have looked from the outside and thought they did. And that describes our Savior. You wouldn't have looked from the outside and thought he is the Savior of the world. He had no form or comeliness that men should desire. He was not the, the powerful political leader that Judah and Israel was looking for. At the same time, he is the firstborn of the Father. So he's both the righteous holder of this birthright, and he's also the second son who obtained the birthright in order to take care of all of his siblings. And I, I just love all of these images and all of these symbols from the Old Testament that teach us about our Savior, teach us how to serve him, teach us how to better love him. And I pray that we'll be able to peg our lives to those points on the compass that we will use the covenants of God as rungs in a ladder, leading us to him forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt, with bumper music in this episode by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.